are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning, church. Our preaching passage this morning is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. John 11, 1 through 44. We're going to be reading together uh, John 11, 17 to 27. So John chapter 11, particularly together now, follow along with me, verses 17 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Being in pastoral ministry for the last eight years, I often find myself walking through really difficult times with people, whether it be marriages on the brink of collapse or parents who watch their children go off in another direction that they uh, do not see as God-glorifying, issues with addiction of various kinds that I've walked with people through. On and on the list will go, but obviously the The most painful of these situations is when when families lose people they love to death. A number of times I've been with family members hours, even minutes before their loved one passes away, sees the Lord. And because I've had these opportunities, I've uh, I've heard many words people use to try and comfort one another. And sometimes these words are helpful Sometimes these words are not the best words to use in the moment. The intentions of the people always speaking are good. They desire to comfort those that they love in their deep grief and in their mourning. But what they're saying is is sometimes not always true. Uh, And I I think about the phrase um, I've heard oftentimes, well, death is just a natural part of life. Now again, the intentions of the ones speaking those words are good. They desire to comfort the person they love in their affliction, in their pain. But the content of those words in particular are not true. You know, in our common everyday talk, <clears throat> when we talk about something being natural, we're implying that something is, is like second nature, so to speak. You know, I think about athletes. When we say a baseball player is a natural What we're saying is that his or her ability to throw or hit or catch is something easily attained. That they don't really have to work hard to achieve greatness. Baseball to that person is second nature. It's natural. 
Or when we use the phrase, maybe, maybe not you, but maybe your parents or grandparents, um, use the phrase natural-born fool. That kid is a natural-born fool. What we're saying is it doesn't take much effort for that person to act foolishly, to make decisions that are not wise, that are not smart. Being foolish is second nature. It's natural. But to say that death is a natural part of life seems to be contradicted by reality. And what I mean by that is we don't naturally approach death with ease. Instead, we try everything we can to prevent death. We get physicals. We eat right. We exercise. We buy cars with the highest safety features. We buy guns to protect ourselves from intruders into our homes or into our cars. We wear makeup or get plastic surgery to try to hide the signs of aging. If death is such a natural part of life, why do we so, do so many things to try and avoid facing the reality of it? And why are we so afraid of it? You know, I want to put forward to you this morning that, that death is actually not a natural part of life. In fact, death is the exact opposite of natural. It is the apex of unnatural. And the sole reason for that is that we were never intended to die. When God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 that they had perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with one another, perfect fellowship with the created order. There was no strife, there was no struggle, there was no death. What characterized humanity in Genesis 1 and 2 was life, not death. God created them to live forever with Him. But as the story progresses, Adam and Eve rebel against their creator. They completely reject his word and his design for how they should live. And Genesis 3 shows us that separation and death are now a result of that. Death was not always a part of reality. But because of sin, because of rebellion against God, death now exists. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6.23 goes, goes on to say that the wages of of sin. So what you get paid for your sin, the paycheck you receive is death. And we all sin. All of us sin. And therefore death, physical death and spiritual death will come to us all. If you were to keep reading past Genesis 3, you see in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, death is there. You get to Genesis 5, and as you read through the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, there's a common refrain. And the common refrain is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Five chapters into the Bible, and death has replaced life as the prevailing reality of humanity. And every single person in this room, you and I, we have felt the sting of death in some form or fashion. We have been robbed by the enemy of someone we love, the enemy who seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We've shed tears of grief. We've shed tears of pain. We've shed tears of loss. So when we come to John 11 and the story of Lazarus, we find ourselves introduced to two sisters, Mary and Martha, in deep mourning over the loss of their brother. And we get that. We understand that. For we too have all been there. 
What's harder for us to wrap our minds around in this story is a Savior who came to swallow up death and grant resurrection for those who put their faith in Him. Now remember the purpose of signs. This is our seventh week in this sermon series. The purpose of signs in the Gospel of John. This is the seventh sign of seven in the Gospel of John. And these miracles of Jesus are intended to communicate to us, as we've talked about regularly, aspects of Christ's character. And we've truly reached the apex of the seven here. Let's not count the resurrection. That's in a different category altogether. But the apex of the seven. And by way of reminder, the purpose of John giving us these signs from John 20, 30, and 31 is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have a life in His name. <clears throat> so this final sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is a precursor. It is the appetizer for the greater resurrection of Christ that is to come a few chapters after this that we'll celebrate in a couple of weeks. This account of, of life being brought from death at the same time, not only is a precursor for that resurrection of Jesus, but it also serves as the final straw of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Because he was gaining notoriety and they were losing popularity. And there are four movements in this text, four movements in verses 1 through 44. Four distinct scenes that we're going to walk through, unpack this morning to communicate one ultimate reality. So if you don't hear anything else from the sermon, hear this sentence. Take this sentence home with you. The one ultimate reality in this setting right here, in these 44 verses, is that where sorrow abounds, Jesus draws near to grant resurrection. That where sorrow abounds, Jesus draws near to grant resurrection. Four movements to communicate that reality. So as we move into our text, the first movement is verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. I'm going to summarize a lot of this. I'll read some, summarize a lot. So just follow along with me. But at the outset of chapter 11, we're told that Jesus receives news that his friend Lazarus is sick. It's the first time in the Gospel of John we're introduced to Lazarus, to Mary, and to Martha. We'll have, uh, although in chapter 12, we'll have an account of Mary washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. Verse 2 in chapter 11 alludes to that scene that comes after chapter 11 here. In verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples about this illness. He says, this illness does not lead to death. That is ultimate death. For, but he's, Jesus says, it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So already at the outset of the narrative here in John chapter 11, John is building anticipation that something miraculous is about to happen. And throughout the gospel, John has repeatedly talked about the glory of God. You see it there in verse 4. He's talked about it many times throughout the gospel up to this point. And the primary way the glory of God is used in this gospel is to describe the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the ultimate glory of God. He is the picture of the invisible God. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So Jesus has come to make God known to the people He interacts with and us. 
So through Jesus, we have the most accurate self-disclosure of God the Father. For Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Father and the Son are each committed to one another's glory. Which I love this. This is a, this picture of selflessness that exists in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. John makes it very clear that the Father delights to glorify the Son. The Son came to glorify the Father. The Spirit, according to John 16, reminds us of God the Son. Jesus glorifies God the Son. It's this intricate dance of glory where each person of the Trinity is lifting up the other person of the Trinity. So Jesus right, after, Jesus, right after he states that what is about to transpire is for the glory of the Father and the Son in verses 4 and 5, he makes a very puzzling comment. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's not too puzzling. Verse 6. So when he, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus hears Lazarus is severely ill. The implicit reason he receives this news being that Mary and Martha want him to come and heal him. Yet because of his love for this family, as verse 5 tells us, instead of going immediately to Bethany to heal Lazarus, he stays two days longer where he was. He delays because he loves them. And you read that and you're like, well, how's that? How, how is that love? Why did he not go immediately? Why did he not leave immediately? How is that demonstrating love to not go to this aid of this family who needs his help? Well, John is teaching us through this first movement, if you're taking notes, that Jesus always has greater purposes in mind during our suffering. That Jesus always has greater purposes in mind during our suffering. That it's not just about us. We pray one way thinking that we know what's best for us or our loved ones in that situation. The mind of Christ is always on the long game. How can this situation you find yourself in make you or me more into the image of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit? Because you have to remember that even in moments of grief and pain and hardship, that God has two purposes for us. One is His glory, and the second is our good. His glory and our good. And those are not at odds. They actually go hand in hand. When God is glorified in you and through you, it is accomplishing your good. For you are being shaped even in those hard, painful moments. You're being shaped more into the image of His Son, Jesus, which is your ultimate good. Even greater than relief from pain, temporary pain, is experiencing the love of Christ while He is working in you and through you to impact those around you. The Lord doesn't always grant our prayers in ways we expect Him to. But however he chooses to answer our prayers or chooses not to answer our prayers, he has greater purposes in mind, as we're going to see with this story. And also, with respect to this account, thinking about why Jesus delayed to go to Lazarus, historically in Jewish thought of the day, the, when someone died, the soul of that person would hover over the body, in their minds, hover over the body for three days 
looking for an opening to go back into the body. But after three days, the soul would give up and move along. So by waiting two days and then arriving two days later, Jesus has shown up on the scene four days after Lazarus is dead. There would be no doubt in the people's minds that Lazarus was truly dead. The three days were over. This is the fourth day. The soul is gone. This is not mere resuscitation. This is resurrection. That Jesus was coming to legitimately raise this guy back to life. Verse 7, after two days, come back to our text. Verse 7, after two days, Jesus says that he and the disciples would should head to Judea. And there's some resistance to this move from the disciples, understandably so, for it was in Judea in chapters 8 and chapters 10 that the Jews tried to stone Jesus. Like, why are we going back there? If you go back there, you're going to get killed and it's game over. It's a very valid point for the disciples. They're not afraid for no reason. There is great reason why going back to Judea would be a bad idea. But Jesus tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. In verse 11, the disciples are like, man, that's great. He's sleeping. He's, he's resting. He needs rest to recover from this illness. But Jesus is like, no. He's dead, verse 14. He's not just sleeping, he has passed away. And for your sake, Jesus says, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And it's true that every time Jesus attended a funeral in the Gospels, the person in the casket always got up. I mean, if you just literally did a study of the Gospels and saw Jesus ever show up at a funeral, the corpse is about to wake up. There is no record in the Gospels of anyone ever dying in the presence of Jesus because he is the resurrection and the life. So they head back. They head back. And that kind of concludes movement one where we move into movement two of our story. Movement two spans from verses 17 to 27, what we just read. And from this movement, we can draw out this point that Jesus draws near to us in our grief. That Jesus draws near to us in our grief. Lazarus has been dead for four days, we said earlier. Jerusalem's two miles away from Bethany, where he is going. Reminds us as readers of the final destination of Christ. That he is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, where he will find the cross and his death on the cross. And here's the deal. Jesus could have healed Lazarus from wherever he was, right? We've seen that already, established through the gospel in our study of John, that Jesus doesn't have to be in close proximity to bring about a miracle. He doesn't have to go. He can just speak a word, and his word is obeyed by just the authority in his voice that his word carried. But he chose not to approach this situation like that. But rather, he chose to go to Bethany. This is for two reasons. One, in the broader picture of things that we already said before, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, to accomplish our salvation. But in a more narrow picture, he chooses to draw near to Mary, to Martha, to the mourners in Bethany, and comfort them in their time of pain. Martha hears that Jesus is coming. She heads out to meet him on his way. Verse 21, if you look at it, she states to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, even now, I know 
that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is not a rebuke from Martha to Jesus. It's a statement of fact. There's no reason to believe as the narrative progresses that Martha does not believe every single word she just said. But these are true groanings of the heart. And we get that. Lord, why is this happening? Yet even now, I choose to trust you in the middle of this situation. It's this tension we feel between our faith and the reality before us. And Jesus responds to her with words of hope. And this is how Jesus draws near to us in our grief. We've talked about this when we studied John chapter 6, that he comforts us with his presence and his word. They go hand in hand. But he says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha hears these words and her mind immediately goes to the last day. Understandably so, that's where her mind goes. But Jesus reorients her thinking from the end to the present. And he says in verse 25, No, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me now, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Don't look to the final day only, Martha. Look at me. I am the true resurrection and the true source of life to be found. Jesus enters into the grief and pain of those he loves and he reminds those he loves where true life is found. And we haven't referenced this up to this point in our study of John. If we were doing a, a more exhaustive study of the gospel, we would obviously reference it a, a, numer, a, a number of times. But in John, just as there are seven signs that unpack for us the character of Christ, there are also seven I am sayings in John. Seven places where Jesus overtly identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament. Communicating that he is the full disclosure of God. Things like I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And these I am statements take us back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, if you remember the story, Moses is encountering God in the burning bush. He's freaking out. He's about to go to the most powerful leader in the world, known world. This God he has never been introduced to is telling him to go. And Moses asks the question, who shall I say sent me? And God responds with, I am who I am. I am. So when Jesus busts out these I am statements in the Gospel of John, he is very explicitly identifying himself with the I am of the Old Testament, that he is God in the flesh. Now, the reason I say that now, and that is a very broad overview of that. Uh, I'd love to dive into it sometime later. But the reason I say that now is there can be no higher claim to divinity than Jesus saying, I am seven times, but then here attaching I am with the resurrection and the life. Whereas the Jews in Jesus' day and, and us oftentimes, we associate resurrection and life with eternal life when we die. Jesus is here saying, no, eternal life is not something to come. It begins now, right now, through faith in Christ, not solely when you die. In Christ, true life begins now. It doesn't start when you die. It starts right now 
through faith in Him. In a world of walking corpses, which is what this world is with people who don't know Christ, in a world of walking corpses, there may be a lot of people that appear to have life on the outside but are dead on the inside. And we have, Christian, we have the opportunity to fully enjoy life today, not just wait for the sweet by and by. I believe there's a place for mourning and for grief and for pain and lament in the Christian life. There's an appropriate place for that. And we need to be slower sometimes to move on from those places. We don't live in a fantasy world where everything is always hunky-dory and okay. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't wait too long before he offers Martha words of comfort and peace and hope. It's been four days. The pain is still fresh. The pain is still real. The funeral hasn't even happened. For where else is hope to be derived in pain than Jesus Christ? So Jesus looks at Martha and her pain, and Jesus says, Have hope, daughter. True life is found in me. Even in your sorrow, even in your grief, I can provide life for you. Life and joy that begin now in the midst of your deepest possible pain. Not simply reserved for the end. Martha believes him. Believes his words, which leads us into the third movement. Verses 28 to 37. And from these verses we can derive that Jesus is familiar with our sorrows. Jesus is familiar with our sorrows. Think about the words of Isaiah chapter 53. Prophet Isaiah speaks of a day when the Messiah would come and he says the Messiah is a a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted. They're friends. He's friends with grief. Author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus being our great high priest. He reminds us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was made like us in every respect yet without sin. Jesus understands what it is to lose someone you love. God the Father knows what it is to lose a son, to have someone stolen away, stolen by your great thieving enemy. Martha tells Mary in verse 28 that Jesus is looking for her. Mary heads out, probably hoping to go out alone. But the text tells us many people follow her because they think she's going to the grave, but she's actually going out to meet Christ, meet Jesus. Not only are there many from Jerusalem in attendance to comfort these sisters, but Jewish custom of the day dictated um, that you were required to have two flute players and a professional wailing woman. So you have not only people that are experiencing real grief, but also professional grievers in attendance that are going with Mary to meet Jesus. And Mary sees him. She falls at his feet. Verse 32, almost verbatim the same thing as Martha. She says, Lord, if you had only been here. In verse 33, Jesus says to her, he sees sees her, he sees all the mourners around her. In my Bible, my translation says that he was deeply moved. He's deeply moved. Now, if you're like me, literally up until this week when I was studying this passage, When I read that phrase, deeply moved, my mind immediately goes to moved by deep grief, right? Deep pain. Jesus is deeply saddened that his friend had died. 
And he resonates with the mourners in their grief. He weeps in verse 35, which is a, man, what an amazing picture of the humanity of Christ, right? God in the flesh literally shedding tears. And in verse 38, the same phrase is used. He's deeply moved, deeply moved in his spirit when he sees the tomb of Lazarus. But when I studied this text, in particular that phrase, deeply moved, it became really clear to me that this phrase has nothing to do with sadness. It has nothing to do with shared grief at all. The Greek word used here is embrimaomai, embrimaomai. That's a word that's used in ancient Greek literature to speak of, of the snorting of horses. When it's talked about as used in human ways to talk about humanity, it's used to describe anger, outrage, emotional indignation. In the case of Jesus, righteous anger, righteous indignation. Jesus is deeply angry in this moment rather than deeply saddened. And that's surprising, right? Surprised me when I was studying this text. But why? Why is that what Jesus is experiencing? If that is truly what this deeply moved in soul means, why did John describe that, use that word to describe the emotions of Jesus in this moment? Is he angry with the mourners that don't recognize him as being able to raise Lazarus? Maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. Is he angry with Mary? who intimately knew him as a friend, losing it in her grief, not recognizing him for who he is, the one who's come from God. Maybe, I don't think so, but maybe. But I think it's something greater than these things. I think as Jesus looks at the mourners, as he looks at Mary, as he looks at Martha, as he looks at this tomb, literally looks at this tomb that holds one of his best friends, he is deeply angry and indignant at the reality of decay, devastation, and death. He looks at these men and women, these people that it are, he made with his very word. He looks at them as they, humanity is made in the very beginning to enjoy life, to enjoy God, the fullness of life. He looks around him and he sees them in deep pain and misery. And instead of being mad at them, he is mad at the enemy that has caused all of these realities to be in place. Instead of succumbing to grief and lament, Jesus righteously hates sin, death, and the devil himself. Now, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And that enemy is running roughshod over this broken world every single day. Jesus is not only acquainted with our sorrows, that is true, He's also acquainted with our anger. Not our petty anger we may feel when we are superficially wronged, like when my girls can't agree to watch Cocomelon or Blippi. But true righteous anger when we see injustice and theft and the effects of sin in this world. When we lose our loved ones, church, when we lose people we love, when they've been stolen from us, we're reminded that we still have a real enemy who loves to take from us. And that should cause us anger. This leads to the fourth movement of the text. The fourth movement, verses 38 to 44. Not only does Jesus teach us that his purposes are greater than ours, 
not only does he draw near to us in our grief and is acquainted with our sorrows, but fourth, Jesus reverses curses to the glory of God the Father. Jesus reverses curses to the glory of God the Father. I want you to picture this scene with me. Just go there in your mind. This scene in John chapter 11. Jesus is righteously angry. Deeply indignant at death and the devil. He sees this tomb. The place that holds his best friend. The place that will want a tomb like this that will hold him. In around two weeks time. He sees this tomb that since Genesis 3 has been the end of relationships, the end of companionship, the end of marriages, the end of parents, the end of children, the end of breath, the end of life. And he says, move the stone. Martha objects. She says, Lord, his body's decaying. He's been there four days. He's going to stink. There's an odor coming from the grave. And Jesus looks at her with eyes of compassion, yet eyes of determination. He says, believe Believe in me, Martha, and behold the glory of God. And he looks up to his father. He looks up to his father, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those around him. And he says, I thank you that you hear me when I pray. May those who see this miracle believe that you sent me. And he stares into the black abyss of that tomb, that tomb which reeks of the stench of death and decay, the tomb that had claimed the lives of every living person in the history of mankind, save for two, Enoch and Elijah. And he looks there and he says with a mighty cry, Lazarus, come out. He doesn't touch the stone. He doesn't lay a hand on the dead man. He doesn't take any grave clothes off this guy. He just speaks a word. And the very word that breathed life into dust at the beginning of time breathes new life into this corpse. And I am sure if he had not specified Lazarus by name, every corpse in Bethany would have risen from their graves. And Lazarus, still in the grave clothes of death, comes hopping out of that tomb to new life. And praise the Lord. Jesus reversed the curse of death and brought great glory to his Father. But even as Lazarus walked out of the tomb with new life, he would eventually die again. His breath would eventually stop. His body would begin to decay and he would return to dust. He was raised in a mortal body, a body that still feels the effects of sin, the effects of this fallen world. Even in the midst of this miracle, we need something greater. We need something more permanent something more lasting, something more eternal. That's why Jesus would go to the cross shortly after this. He would offer up his life on his own accord. He would hang on a cross naked, alone, humiliated, under the curse of God. The author of life would lose his life at the hands of those he created and gave life to. The mortal body of Jesus would be beaten. It would be scorched. His mortal body would bleed. It would thirst. It would eventually give out and die. But three days later, three days later, Jesus would not be resurrected in a mortal body. He would not need people to come and take off his old grave clothes of death. He would not hop out of a tomb still bound by fabric of fallenness. Jesus 
would rise from the tomb with a new spiritual body. A body free from death and decay, a body that would never give out again. He would not need anyone to remove his grave clothes, but rather he would leave his clothes behind in the tomb never to be seen again. Jesus Christ would leave the grave behind and thus by his resurrection, he would reverse the curse. He is the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first fruits, the precursor, the pattern that all of us who have believed in his name would follow. That as our mortal bodies lie in our graves, as our souls depart from our bodies temporarily to be with the Lord, as our bodies decay and return to dust, there will come a day when we will hear a cry much greater than this cry. And all of our bodies and all the bodies of those who have died in Christ will be put back together and they will rise immortal from their graves. And we will go to be with the Lord our God our victorious King forever and ever. And where sorrow has abounded, church, where sorrow has abounded, Jesus Christ will draw near to us fully and finally and grant us full resurrection. With a cry, Jesus will raise all of us in Him from the grave to the glory and praise of God, His Father and ours. So we say together, we say together, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, I, I hate that death still resides in this world. hate that every person in this room, barring the return of Christ, will feel the sting of death. We will all one day die, all of us. So I pray a couple things. One, I pray that you draw near to us even now, draw near to us, those of us who may be in grief and mourning, loss. Maybe we lost loved ones last week. Maybe we lost loved ones 10 years ago, but the grief is still real. The pain is still real. Draw near to us through the Holy Spirit and comfort, comfort your people. May we take great comfort and hope in the gospel. As we see a broken reality all around us, may we, oh God, may we remember the gospel, remember the hope of Christ in the midst of our pain and in our grief. Remind us as believers that the end is not the end for those of us in Christ. That there is a great hope that we cling to. Yes, the hope of heaven, but the hope of full and final resurrection. Our bodies will be raised to life again. Whereas dust was taken from the ground at the beginning, dust will be taken out of graves at the end and formed into bodies again. New bodies with life breathed into us again. May we, oh God, may we at Emmanuel Church, may we be a source of great gospel hope. May we remind one another daily of the hope we have in Christ, even in the midst of the deepest possible pain. Thank you, oh God, for Christ. 
becomes acquainted with our sorrows, acquainted with our grief. You do not stand far off, far off from us, O God, in your transcendence, but you became near to us in Jesus. Draw near to us again in the Spirit. Remind us the great hope we have in Jesus. For your glory, O God, we pray these things. Amen. from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.